you could say that today's Russia is just as crazy as having pickles with vodka. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, NPR's David Green shares what the people he met on the Trans-Siberian Railroad showed him about living in modern Russia. Life is hard. It was hard in Soviet times. It's still hard today. Guides from Portugal return with tips for enjoying the winemaking region around Porto and the Douro Valley. And you can stay with these families, and the facilities are fantastic. It's like you're in someone's home, you're taken care of, and you've got all that beautiful countryside right outside your window. And friends from Scotland recommend visiting a local pub to get to know the real Scotland. But be warned that in Glasgow, their style of humor might catch you off guard. It's one that the Americans take a little while to get used to because it's sarcasm and irony. It's the play down. Get an intimate look at Portugal, Russia, and Scotland in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What do you want to see when you look out the window on your next vacation? If you think a view of terraced slopes with acres of centuries-old vineyards sounds nice, stick around for tips for enjoying the Douro River Valley region of Portugal in just a moment. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. If ever you get to ride the Trans-Siberian Railway across Russia, you'll have plenty of time to stare out the window at vast grasslands with an occasional scenic lake or commercial center to break up the journey. That is, until one of your fellow Russian travelers breaks out the vodka and invites you to join in to warm up a long Russian night. NPR's David Green got to know some of the working-class locals on his wintertime rail trips across Russia. He's back with us today on Travel with Rick Steves to share more of his impressions of how everyday Russians are getting by in the vast, forgotten stretches far beyond the big cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg. One of the best places to get acquainted with the people who live in Scotland is the Neighborhood Pub. Tour guide friends from Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Fife join us a little later in the hour with tips for making friends and spirited conversation in the pubs of Scotland. And that includes how to take their rascally sense of humor in good stride. Let's open the hour in a scenic wine lover's destination. It's about three hours north of Lisbon. Harvest time allows you a look at traditions of rural Portugal and rewards you with a memorable glass of port wine for dessert. The agricultural region ends with the harbor in Portugal's number two city, Porto. The scenic microclimates of the Douro River Valley run eastward from there another 60 miles or so, nearly to the border with Spain. Here to take us around Porto and the Douro Valley is Portugal tour specialist Robert Wright. We're also joined by Cristina Duarte, who guides tours of her country from her home base in Lisbon. Cristina and Robert, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Am I pronouncing this correctly, Robert? What is the river valley called? Douro. Douro. I would say there's nothing like it that most people have ever seen in their lives because it's so majestic. And even if you may have seen photographs in your pre-trip planning, nothing prepares you for the extent of vineyards that you see and the terraces that are everywhere. Deus criou o mundo. Os homem criou o, o Douro. And what does that mean in English? That uh, God created the world, but the man created the Douro Valley. And when you look at the Douro Valley, the man created Douro Valley, it's really an indication of all of those terraces. Done by hand, still done, hand, still doing hand. it. And it's like, you know, it's like a topography map or something that shows all the altitude. Every one of those terraces, ages old, and As, there's no castles there. It's just like we think of castles and so on in rivers. No castles, just gorgeous vineyards and As terraces. far as the eye can see. It's like one of the wonders of the world in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. Actually, it is an, a world heritage place, the landscape. If you want to appreciate port wine in this gorgeous river valley, what is your approach, Christina? What would you do? 
right now it's quite easy. Most of the private little uh, producers, they have a, kind of a, a mansion on their door that they sell. And uh, why not just to, if you, a person wants to try to just knock and say, well, can I try the your, so this is a small the farm, producers? A, a quinta, yes. is that the word? A quinta. A quinta. And so, Robert, how would you plan to go to a quinta and what would you see or experience when you go to a quinta? If you're lucky enough to go to one of the smaller ones, you get a very tailored experience because it will likely only be you there at the time, mm -hmm. uh, which is fantastic. And you can meet actually the family and they can tell you about their traditions and history of working it. And they can also show you the facilities where they make the port wine. If you go to a larger one, it's a little bit more uh, commercial experience where they have uh, tour sites already set up and they have explanatory graphs and things like that. But either one is good to understand a history and also the different types of port. So like visiting vineyards anywhere, you can go to the big uh, mechanized ones or you can go to the funky little rustic yes. ones. And Christina, describe a, a small farm and the way they make their, they do their uh, their work. A small farm must have, starts already by the, on the terraces, on the vineyards. They have to be able to have at least five or six different uh, variety of grapes, you know, that because port wine is a blended wine. So they have to be able to have all the differences in order mm -hmm. to make their wine and blending it like a, like a cake, you see. You, you do always your own recipe. So Each of they, these families would have yes, their own blend. So, exactly. So then they assemble them. The harvest normally takes place around second or third week mm -hmm. of September, and they cut it by hand. They are still mm -hmm. cut it till the main tractor. It's also by hand because many times the terraces are so narrow that you cannot mechanize it. So very traditional. Then, very and, traditional. And labor yes, and there is no way of doing differently. This is a labor of love, and there's one way to do it to make it traditional yes. port. Robert, in a nutshell, how do you define port wine? What What is unique about port? What makes it port? What makes it port? Port wine is something that you classified either by its color, and also there's a, a very specific way of making it. So you have basically a fermentation process that takes place in any type of wine, but you stop that fermentation when you leave some of the natural sugars in there. You don't let them all ferment out. And then you add what we would probably call grappa, a fire water mixture to it. It's a very high alcohol content. And you add that to the wine and it becomes port wine. Then the aging is where the different colors come into play. So you've got either white, ruby, or tawny. And it depends on whether you age it a little bit in the bottle or you age it in the barrel. And there's all these variations and people have such a wonderful way of mixing and matching styles. So you can either get a white or a ruby, which is the reserve as well, which is some of the best port that you'll ever have. And then the tawny, which is the sort of leathery color, but it's aged in barrels as opposed to the bottle. Is it fair to say that port wine is sweet? It is. It depends on the sweetness of the manufacturer of what they want to do. But it's but generally a dessert wine? It is a dessert wine. And also, you can also have dry ports as well, mm -hmm. which are typically the white ports. It almost tastes like a fino sherry. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Robert Wright and Cristina Duarte are our guides to the scenic vineyards of Portugal's Douro River Valley. You can post your own comments and tips for enjoying the north of Portugal to our online message board forum. It's inside the radio section at ricksteves.com. Now, you can actually go to the city of Port, which is the main industrial port where the river hits the, the sea, and this is like the second city of Portugal. It is the second city of Portugal. And then across from the river in Port, you've got a district. What is the name of the district? 
Vila Nova de Gaia. Vila Nova de Gaia. de Gaia. And there you can visit the actual headquarters of all these the, greatest the wine, houses of port. The wine lodges or the wine cellars is where the, the port wine ages. The production is on the Douro Valley because it is an assembling of all conditions on the humidity, exposure to sun and the soil, all those things that make port wine unique in the world. But then over there at the Douro Valley, the winters are very cold and the summers are very hot. So to age, the wine needs a more Atlantic mild weather. Mm. That's why the, the barrels were to put in Villanova de Gaia in order that they will be spared from the hot summers and the, and the cold winters. And the name of the wine that was aging there was the name of the city where was it aging and from where it was exported. That's why port wine. Oh, so that the name of the wine came from the city, yes, port. Yes, And just to be clear, the, the wine ferments up in the river yes, valley in the exactly. vineyards, and then they put it on these traditional boats in barrels, and mm-hmm. it goes down to the coast, and then it ferments again in the city of Port. In these it barrels. ages. Ages, I mean. Ages. It, that's it, the difference mm-hmm. is ages. Before we leave the river valley, Robert, can you actually sleep in these in these quintas? You certainly can. There are many that have opened up their doors to tourism, and you can stay with these families, and the facilities are fantastic. It's like you're in someone's home, you're taken care of, and you've got all that beautiful countryside right outside your window. Now, Robert, I know that you love Lisbon, and you spend a lot of your free time in Lisbon, and, and Port is like the second city of Portugal. It's the earthy, nitty-gritty, kind of edgier version, it seems like, industrial version of Lisbon. But how would you describe Port from a tourism point of view? If somebody's going to Portugal, they're going to see Lisbon. Is it worth going up a couple hours north to see the town of Porto? It's definitely worth it, if not only just to compare and contrast. You've got Lisbon that's right on the uh, Tejal River, and then you've got the Douro River, which is for Porto. And both cities, you may think, well, it sounds similar, but they are completely different. And I think that the thing that Porto has that Lisbon does not is this sort of kind of the earthy and gritty feeling that you were talking about because not only is the climate different, so it's a little bit grayer for more of the year. Lisbon has more sun, Porto has more clouds, but also the building materials of the city, which is granite blocks, that also adds to the grayness of it, but gray can be very beautiful. And I understand Lisbon was destroyed in the great earthquake of 1755, and Porto generally survived it or, or not? The, the fracture that can originate some earthquakes in Lisbon area doesn't go that far. So, so Porto yes, survived the so earthquake. Yes, yes, yes. So they were, it was not felt at all. More of the old world has survived in Porto than in Lisbon. Oh, yes. That's why I'm, I'm from Lisbon, but I must tell you I love the city of Porto. I think that it has so much potential. It's like just arriving to the city is like, <gasps> what is this? It is <laughs> like, <laughs> and then you see a series of bridges all along the yes. river, and you can take riverboat cruises and go underneath those bridges, and it's yes. absolutely beautiful. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we've been broadening our understanding of Portugal. We're talking about Portugal's second city, Porto, and the river that goes from there inland, which makes the great port wine. And we've been joined by Robert Wright and Christina Duarte. And Christina, if we could just finish up this discussion of Port and and the region. I know you've got great cities in Portugal, uh, Coimbra, Braga, Lisbon, Porto. Is there a saying about the people of these cities that kind of gives the character 
Of, yes, of, there of, is of the there is a saying that saying in can I say it in Portuguese or <laughs> say it in Portuguese and then tell us it in English. All right, right. I do it. <laughs> em Lisboa divertimos-nos. No Porto trabalhamos, em Braga rezamos e em Coimbra estudamos. And what so, does that mean in English? Means in Lisbon we get fun. In Porto we work. In Braga we pray. In Coimbra we study. Say that again in Portuguese, please. Em Lisboa divertimos-nos. No Porto trabalhamos, em Braga rezamos, em Coimbra estudamos. So you work in Porto, but I think you play a little bit too with the help of that great port wine. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Robert Wright and Cristina Duarte. Uh, obrigado. De nada. De nada. <laughs> The pubs of Scotland provide you with an ideal setting for getting to know the locals. We'll explore that in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Next, David Green from NPR's Morning Edition shares his impressions of the Russian heartland and tells us what he learned from the people he got to know while riding the Trent-Siberian Railway. When David Green was finishing up his assignment as a foreign correspondent in Moscow, before he returned to the NPR headquarters in Washington, he made time to book a passage on the legendary Trans-Siberian Railway. The rail line is famous as the conduit that pulls Russia together as a nation, from Moscow to the Pacific port of Vladivostok. And it's infamous for being the vehicle that Stalin used to exile his dissenters to the far corners of Siberia. David's itinerary included stops in parts of Russia that few foreigners would ever think to visit. He knew that would be the best way to get acquainted with the struggles and concerns of the working-class people, the people who live in the heart of Russia. David writes about it in his book, Midnight in Siberia. David Green, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me, Rick. Wow, you went on the Trans-Siberia, I understand, two times to write this book. How long were you traveling on the Trans-Siberian? And, and give us a little context. What is the Trans-Siberian Railway, and how does that connect us with the Russia beyond Moscow? Well, it is uh, sort of the spine of Russia, I would say. It goes about 6,000 miles from Moscow to Vladivostok. Now, you can also take an alternate route, and you can kind of dip down south and go from Moscow to Beijing instead. But I went Moscow to Vladivostok twice in the wintertime, I should say, and I went for about three weeks on my first trip in 2011 and about five weeks for my trip last year. And both times, I just wanted a snapshot of Russia at what is such an interesting moment when, as you know, as you said, a lot of the world just doesn't understand mm -hmm. what Russians want and where Russia is going. It was just a great way to meet people, not draw any sort of big, firm conclusions about the country, because I'm in no position to do that, but just to listen to people and, and kind of go where my curiosity took me. I understand from reading your book that taking the Trans-Siberian Railway is like going on a train from L.A. to New York, back to L.A., and then over to Chicago. In other words, it's a very long trip. You must have broken it up, or you would have gone stir-crazy. If somebody's <laughs> thinking about taking the Trans-Siberian Railway... I suppose some people just sit on that thing for six or seven days, but how would you make it worth all the boredom and trouble? I would stop 
at least a number of times. And it really depends on how much time you have. The trip itself, you know, you could just do in five or six days and call it a day. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not worth the trouble of going there. If you have six or seven weeks and you're really sort of an explorer, I mean, you could take the Trans-Siberian but get off and hire cars or, or take sort of smaller trains and really explore different parts of Russia. If you have two weeks, I would say it might even be mm -hmm. worth it if you really like the train because then you're talking about one day on, one day off, and you could see, you know, a few of the larger cities. You could get out to Russia's far east, see Lake Baikal, which is this beautiful lake in the far east of Russia, the deepest freshwater lake in the world, just absolutely stunning. Mm -hmm. You know, see four or five different places and at least get a feel for what Russia's like outside of Moscow. David, when most of us do our traveling, we're thinking, oh, I'll visit the Tower of London, I'll go up the Eiffel Tower, or I'll take a gondola ride. When you go from Moscow to Vladivostok, first of all, did you have a guidebook to recommend things? And what would be the top two or three adventures or experiences? You wrote beautifully, for instance, about the hovercraft across Lake Baikal. Yeah. <laughs> I did have guidebooks. I'd done a lot of reading about people and places and the history and chose kind of something that would give me a lot of, you know, a lot of variation on, on different places. I wanted to go to cities and towns that were different sizes, really get out into mm -hmm. the country. Was it adequately covered by the guidebooks? Was there a lonely planet that gave you what you needed? Surprisingly, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I discovered a lot more of Russia. It's so vast that the guidebooks certainly don't cover no, everything, right. but they did a lot. They really helped a lot. And I did come away thinking that had I been doing this just as a tourist, that the guidebook would have give me a really good trip. But Lake Baikal is the big one. You cannot cross Russia without seeing it. It's been compared to Lake Tahoe. I think it is more beautiful, more stunning. It freezes totally in the wintertime. And so you can take a hovercraft across it. You could walk across it if you're crazy enough. You could bike across it. You could drive across hmm. it. It is just a stunningly gorgeous place. It's magical. And uh, when that train makes a turn and you get your first look at Lake Baikal, I mean, you're spellbound. Now, David, you were going there to learn about the new Russia as opposed to, I suppose, the Soviet Russia. How has Russia changed? Or for the working class guy stuck in the middle of Siberia, is it just, I've had people in the Soviet Union in the old days tell me the musicians change, but the music stays the same. In that society, have the musicians changed and the music's still the same for the workers, or is it actually a new age? You know, what really strikes you is that during Soviet times, as hard as life was for people, there was this ideology that kind of gave people a sense of purpose. It was the glue that kind of kept the place together, the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Today, Russians are really searching for mm -hmm. an identity, and they're thinking about what they want and how they're going to get there. And so for average Russians, you know, out in a village in a remote part of the country, their lives have actually probably gotten a little bit better. After Soviet times, you know, the Yeltsin years were very, very painful for people when there was economic turmoil in the country. Mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin, for the average Russian, if you look at the numbers, life has probably gotten slightly better. But it's a country that still has so many problems. Alcoholism, domestic violence is rampant. And mm -hmm. a lot of parts of the country are underdeveloped. Um, you know, roads aren't paved. There's no reliable police service. So life is hard. It was hard in Soviet times. It's still hard today. So the physical souvenirs of the USSR, every time I travel in, in former communist countries, I notice there's still the beaters, the ladas, the old you know tin can cars, the towering decrepit workers' apartments, the heritage of corruption, which doesn't seem to change, and, and old statues of Lenin on main squares. What did you see that reminded you of the Soviet Union as you traveled across Russia? All still there. I mean, the statues of Lenin are there. There's a city called Ulan Ude, not far from Lake Baikal in the Far East, where 
it is the largest head of Lenin in a statue. It is just enormous. And then the corruption, you know, people actually say that it's probably worse today mm-hmm. than in Soviet times because at least people knew what they were getting and a lot of people in the party had to kind of stay in line with the party and they couldn't look out for themselves. Now you have corrupt bureaucrats who in some cases are just creating chaos so they can basically force people to not know what in the world is going on and have to bribe to get anything they want. If you want to run a business, if you want to get an appointment with your kid's teacher, if you want to get moved up for surgery, I mean, it all takes money, it takes bribes, and it's just frustrating. I mean, I was listening to people, I couldn't imagine how they live this way. You know, across the Warsaw-packed region, I find there's a little bit of nostalgia for the old days. And as a matter of fact, you find theme restaurants uh, serving dreary food from the 1960s. The nostalgia is something that is so perplexing. And I knew that there was nostalgia for Soviet times in general, but there is now nostalgia for Joseph Stalin. That was really, really momentous to learn. There was one woman um, in the East who was this environmental activist and was all about bringing change to her community. And I thought, you know, here's someone who is probably going to be all about democracy. And she started out by telling me that she's frustrated with the apathy in the country. People don't have a sense of purpose anymore. And I said, okay. And then she said, you know what we need? And she pulled out a biography of Stalin. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking that she's joking somehow. Mm. And I said, what do you want? She said, we need order again. We need that sense of purpose. And I said, but do you also need the gulags? Do you need political repression? Do you need death? And she said, oh, no, I don't want that stuff. We just need the order. And that's the confusing place that a lot of Russians are in, I think. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is David Green from National Public Radio's Morning Edition. David got to know the opinions and concerns of everyday Russians from his adventures along the Trans-Siberian Railway and as a former Moscow bureau chief for NPR. He's written about it in his book Midnight in Siberia, A Train Ride into the Heart of Russia. It's published by Norton. You know, education is so important. I was just in Germany, and I was impressed by how a couple decades ago they didn't deal with Hitler. Now it's explicitly part of their high school curriculum. In 11th grade, you learn about Nazis. In 12th grade, you learn about communism. And they really need to learn from their history. And they've learned a a smart electorate is really, really important just for their fabric of their community, their stability, and their democracy. Is there a sense of that in Russia, that they've got to educate and learn from their past? Yes and no. I think that in Russian schools, Russian textbooks, there is definitely uh, an effort by the state to sort of rewrite history. But I made this mistake of assuming that a lot of Russians just didn't know enough about the world, democratic values, Mm -hmm. you know, to make a wise decision for themselves. That was wrong. Russians are really literate. Mm -hmm. A lot of them have read about the world. Some have traveled. There are people who have listened to the BBC. They've followed all the news of the Arab Spring. I mean, they know what's going on. They know what it means to be in a democratic society. They know what the values are that we hold dear in the United States. They have the information to make decisions. Mm -hmm. It's not that they don't have an understanding about how the world works. They're just thinking very seriously about what their lives should be like, what they want, what will make their families Mm safer. And, you know, the automatic answer is not democracy. That's what I was impressed by. I I just jumped ship in St. Petersburg. And I was struck by how people really were more excited about stability 
Putin has all sorts of shortcomings from a democracy point of view, but from a stability point of view, eh, he's doing all right compared to where they've come from. As a matter of fact, I went to a restaurant called Restaurant Schengen, and it was a restaurant named after the visa treaty that lets Russians travel, and they were Mm -hmm. so excited for the freedom to travel. They are, and what I took from talking to Russians about politics, it is not like there is some menu of political systems and political ideologies, and Russians sit there saying, oh, well, do I want a democracy or do I want a tough, (laughs) kind of mean, authoritarian leader like Vladimir Putin? Let me just check a box. They think about what will make their lives better. You know, Mm. I think democracy had its moment in the Yeltsin years, and a lot of Russians felt like it was a failure. So it's a question sometimes of patience. I think it's a question a lot of people around Mm. the world are are thinking about when it comes to democracy. And right now, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of Russians will say they're not prepared to take the risk to have upheaval. Lives are far from perfect. And, you know, Vladimir Putin is bringing them stability. And, you know, the one additional thing we should say is Vladimir Putin is very good at propaganda. So while Russians are making choices on their own, sometimes the information they're getting is, shall we say, a bit skewed from the government. So that certainly plays a role. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with David Green. He's the co-host of NPR's Morning Edition. He took a little break from his NPR work and traveled across Russia two times on the Trans-Siberian Railway. That's like five times across the United States. The whole goal (laughs) was to meet and learn from the Russian people. It sounds like you had a trusty uh, interpreter with you, so you really could get into places. Your book is Midnight in Siberia. It's a fascinating read if you always were wondering what it'd be like to not only travel across Russia, but to get to know the people. David, you went into a number of homes, and this is one of my favorite parts of your reporting. Describe the typical domestic scene in in a house in some forlorn little town in the middle of Russia. You'd either walk up and it would be kind of a a ramshackle house or sort of an old Soviet-style concrete apartment building. And oftentimes on the outside, it would seem just in really rough shape. You know, if it was an apartment building... You know, it might be shedding paint. You might go through an old creaky metal door. And then if there's an elevator, go up an old elevator. You can't even think how this thing is actually operating anymore. But then you would come upstairs into some dark hallway and someone would open their apartment door and immediately the scene would change and there would be this warmth. There would be, you know, maybe hardwood floors with a rug. And as soon as you walk in, the expectation is you're going to take off your shoes, Hmm. either just stay in your socks or they might have slippers there ready for you. And then you'll walk in sit at the dining room table probably. And, you know, if a family knew you were coming, they would have a spread of food, Russian pelmini, the the little Mm. dumplings. They might have borscht. They might have meat. They might have Russian salads. Tea will be flowing. Maybe vodka will be flowing. Mm. Maybe cognac will be flowing. And you'll just end up spending this, this wonderful, magical experience with a family in someone's home for hours. David, you talked about homes heated by wood, cooking with gas canisters, big flat screen TVs, well water, women doing makeup in the kitchen, Talk a little bit about that dimension of the uh, domestic scene. Contradictions. I mean, the flat screen television, but only one place where water from a well is actually coming in. And so you're doing dishes in basically a bathtub where, you know, um, the woman who lives in the house is doing her makeup. But everyone has cell phones. Um, A lot just doesn't make sense. Roads that would be unpaved. A family saying, we don't understand why we don't get natural gas service here for heat because we're the biggest one of the biggest energy providers in the entire world, this country. Why aren't they providing it for us? Maybe command economy as opposed to free economy. Maybe there's a heritage of that there, so people just, it doesn't quite seem to flow like it might in our world. What about what about pickles? Every time I go to Russia to a little grocery (laughs) store, I see all these, you know, we have a couple of kinds of pickles, but they've got a whole wall filled with pickles. And not just pickled cucumbers. I mean, there'll be pickled mushrooms, pickled cauliflower. 
I don't know the history. It goes really well with vodka, though. I will tell you that. My sense was it sort of, yeah, it complements the vodka. We'll get cheese and crackers and salami or cold cuts, and they'll have pickles with their vodka. Also, yeah. uh, a striking thing, you step into a market, you find people really into, uh, with a, a very uh, passion for honey, and these honey maids dip their little toothpicks into honey, and they want you to try this and that and this and that, and there's a world of different honeys, and I understand it's, it's actually considered a, a medicinal thing. Yeah, and, and actually, <laughs> there was a wonderful night where I was offered medicinal honey. I was in um, a Russian bathhouse with a Russian veterinarian, and uh, at the end of the night, as we were sitting there eating horse sausage and vodka and beer, he said that he's a veterinarian who actually treats ailments that animals have with their hooves, farm animals, and he uses honey to do it. And he was offering me honey, telling me that it would somehow be medicinal. Now, I think, <laughs> I think I'd had one too many shots to remember exactly how I was supposed to use this honey, but it was very generous of him to offer me a jar of it. Well, into your vodka evening with your new Russian friends, the guy comes up and says, I treat my horses with honey. Here, try this. Exactly. Sounds like a Russian party. He it also wrote party. beautifully about the Russian banya, the bathhouse experience. We, yeah. We're just running out of time, but you were in a, in a town called Uva. Tell me about, I guess, what the Russians call their favorite theater of pain. <laughs> it's, it's a very good description of it. Yeah, this is actually where I met this veterinarian. He was the only other person staying in the hotel, and we met, and he said, let's spend the night together in the banya. And we went in. He was the chairman of his local banya society, so he knew what was going on. And in a Russian bathhouse, I mean, you have a spread of vodka, beer. There was horse sausage he had brought. And then he takes me into the room. He douses these stones with water. They heat up. And, I mean, it is unbearable. Your skin feels like it's going to boil off. And then he starts whacking me with a birch branch, <laughs> which is part of the routine. <laughs> Evidently, this somehow helps you, and it's therapeutic. And then as if that wasn't painful enough, you douse yourself with ice-cold water, and that's the end of the experience. And then you go sit there, and we were just sitting there in our boxer shorts, you know, having gone through all of that, <laughs> drinking vodka, eating horse sausage, just another <laughs> night in Russia. Just another night in Russia. I love it. David Green, what an exciting adventure for you to take the Trans-Siberian Railway, not once, but twice, and get off at places where nobody else has ever gotten off and write about it, to take notes, to meet people, to eat horse sausage and have your <laughs> naked body be spanked by strangers with birch twigs when it's all red as a lobster from being in Russia's favorite theater of pain. It's all enjoying Russia outside of Moscow. Let's just close, David, with your advice to our listeners who want to really enjoy an experience in Russia. What is your trick to gain an understanding of the Russian people if somebody has a vacation coming up and, and they're tempted to go to Russia? I'll say two things. One is... Just be ready for anything. You know, you have to truly be an adventurer because something will go wrong in Russia at any point. Something will be inexplicable. You just have to roll with it and not get upset or angry. And also, all the assumptions you made about Russian society based on, you know, maybe watching the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, expectations that Russians would be rushing for democracy, just throw them out the window and listen to people and enjoy. And I suppose the biggest danger is you're going to be forced to drink vodka by a big former Russian wrestler, and you're going to be spanked by somebody with birch twigs. Yes, those are risks as well. Uh, wear, be ready for that. Wear your money belt. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Talk to people. If an opportunity comes up, say yes. There you go. Yeah, don't say no. Let, just let it all happen. Don't say no. David Green, thank you so much for the work you do at NPR and for reporting on your time on the Siberian Railway, Midnight in Siberia. That's the book. Happy travels, David. Thank you so much, Rick. Thanks for having me on. 
Friends from Scotland take us inside the local pub next with tips that any visitor can use if you want to feel like one of the clan on your next trip to Scotland. 877-333-7425. That's our number at Travel with Rick Steves. Ich reise mit Rick Steves. I'm Ursula Klaus from Vienna and that was, in Viennese German, I travel with Rick Steves. Ich reise mit Rick Steves. Thank you. What distinguishes a good trip, no matter where you travel, is how you're able to connect with people. And I gotta admit, most Americans are like me. We speak one language, and you have an advantage in connecting with people when you travel to a country, that is a foreign country, that happens to speak English. One great opportunity for that is Scotland. And when you go to Scotland, people love to talk, and there's an institution designed for people to get out and talk, and that is called The Pub. We're going to talk about pub talk in Scotland right now, and we're joined by three Scottish tour guides, Anne Doig from Edinburgh, Colin Mares from Glasgow, and Liz Lister from Fife. Liz, Colin, Anne, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Colin, what is it about a pub in Scotland that sort of enables people to connect? Well, the pub's always been the, the kind of heart of the community in most Scottish towns and villages. Everyone's got their local, so that's your local pub. and It's where they're loyal. Yeah, yeah, they'll, they'll go there, some people more than others, but... It's where everyone gets together. There's young and old and families. And it's like we have this TV show in the United States, Cheers. I don't know. Do yes, exactly. exactly. I, you know, Cheers every, to me is yeah. a utopia. Yeah. But in Scotland, there is a Cheers bar in every town, I yeah, think. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. And you got the characters and you got the, the, the coziness and where everybody knows your name. That's exactly. part of the words, isn't it? Liz, if you go to a pub and you're taking a, a visitor from the United States into a pub, how would you help introduce them to the Scottish culture in the confines of the pub? Well, I do take my visitors into a pub and I have them very strictly drilled before they go in not to turn tail and run, as many of them have done in the past. It's scary. It can be very intimidating. I think it's important to say that there's lots of different types of pubs. We've got our equivalent of sports bars where there'll be huge screens and sport will dominate. But there's also music um, and there's just the place to gather to put the world to rights. But the first thing is not to be intimidated. People love visitors. They love Americans. And all that they have to do is walk in, buy a beer. And that's an important fact because a lot of them walk in and stand watching the music without a drink in their hand. They must have a drink Get in a their drink hands. Get a drink in your hand. That's absolutely, the ticket to admission. You're part of the scene yeah. that way. Even if it's half a pint that they nurse for the whole night, have that drink in their hand. <laughs> and then the locals will come up and talk to them. Uh, ah. that uh, may be something, a talking point, like um, someone will say, with a shirt like that, you must come from Hawaii. Um, <laughs> something like that. But they'll start the conversation and they're very welcoming and they're not at all frightening. Now, Liz, you said uh, you're welcome in any pub, but I was with you, Colin, in Glasgow, which is a pretty rough and tumble town. And I saw a few pubs where I thought, I don't really feel comfortable <laughs> in there. There are some rough and tumble pubs. Yeah, I think, I think you get them everywhere. It's, I think, what you call here are dive bars. Dive bars. Yeah, you yes. get certain dive bars, which maybe you'd rather not go into, but if you go in there, you're going to get the real character. And but, uh, uh, if you're brave enough. But, Anne, you're in, in Edinburgh. Yeah. Edinburgh is a town with fewer dive bars, I, I think it's fair to say, than Glasgow. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> no? More bars in Glasgow. That's <laughs> more bars. Is that right? And if you're taking me to your favorite local in Edinburgh, describe the, the scene. I'd probably take you to Kay's Bar in the New Town. And a lot of people say, oh, the New Town's a bit sort of posh. But it's a, it's a nice wee pub and you get to know the sort of people if you go in there. But Edinburgh is different. You'd have to go for that kind of experience of a pub down to Leith, the port ah, area. Because yeah. the centre of Edinburgh, lots of the 
the old banks have become wine bars and they're sort of wine bars. I've and noticed the that. That's a phenomenon. All over the British Isles is yes. the, the traditional bank buildings were so fancy and impressive and luxurious as if to impress upon their bankers that this is a very stable business, mm-hmm. so wealthy. And then in the modern times, they need a bigger facility. They move outside of town and you got these glorious venues that become wine bars and pubs. Wine bars and pubs. But there are a few in the centre of Edinburgh. There's a writer, Ian Rankin, and there's two pubs, the Oxford and the Cambridge. And one of his detectives, the crime writer, Rebus, Rebus drinks in the Ox. And there's a Guildford Arms. I take some of my visitors there. It's the traditional pub. And you, you just go up to the bar and you have to buy your drink and you can start chatting with people. Or y'all have to scoosh in. I love that. And I, I've yes. got some great memories in Edinburgh. And one of the keys for me is not to just order a beer, but to have an opportunity to venture into the world of whiskey. Yes. And uh, Liz, I was in uh, a bar in, uh, in Dalkeith Road area of Edinburgh, and it had a long list of whiskeys. And I really, I'm clueless about Scotch whiskey, but what a great opportunity to talk to somebody. Absolutely. They'll all be experts. I mean, basically, the whiskey in Scotland is divided up into regions. And so everyone will have their own particular preference, whether it's Peaty Island or whether it's sweet from the, the lowlands. And the way to drink it, whether you drink it straight, we tend not to drink it with ice. We tend to drink it with just a spot of water to release the flavours and, and uh, help the palate. Um, so there's an art to drinking whiskey, not just which one you choose. So if I sat in a bar next to you and, and you were just enjoying a drink in, in your local bar and, and I was just a strange tourist that came in, you'd help me out. You'd take me by the hand and... I'm afraid I wouldn't be the expert, but there'd be plenty around about <laughs> who would be. <laughs> That's good. Colin, when I look at the whiskey list, I'm in, intimidated by people who describe wine as a little bit of raspberry and a, a little mm-hmm. bit of oakiness or whatever. I really don't get that. But yeah. when it comes to whiskey... You really can. And I find in the bars, a lot of times they'll describe the whiskey. Mm-hmm. And then you do get that yeah. that earthy flavor, that peaty flavor. Yeah. And you smoky. just feel like smoky. Yeah, I'd yeah. say it's more obvious with whiskey than it is with wine. Mm. You can tell immediately if something's smoky or if it's not smoky. Like Liz says, the smokier ones are from, from the islands. So Isla specifically, you've got things like Ardbeg, Lagavulin, Laphroaig. Yeah. They're, they're the real pungent, but, you know, smoky the, ones. Everybody knows you there's can, Irish whiskey and Scotch yeah. whiskey. The Irish whiskey's much better, isn't it? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Irish whiskey's usually triple distilled, whereas uh, Scottish is usually double distilled. Uh, triple doesn't mean it's better, it's just the best way they've found to do it. But Irish whiskey, I would say, is a lot lighter and um, kind of softer than Scottish whiskey. And what's you your take real, on the two whiskeys? Well, I'm not a whiskey drinker, but my father was. And there's over 300 different single malt whiskeys in Scotland. Wow. And all four characters, malted barley, thyme, water, the distilling process, same ingredients, and they've all got whole You know, there's nothing like voyage. having an expert like your father or, or mm. somebody who's at the bar that can explain this to you. One, two, three, four. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Pub Talk in Scotland. We're joined by Anne Doig, Colin Mayers, and Liz Lister. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Brandon is calling in from Jonesboro in Arkansas. Brandon, thanks for your call. Yes, thanks for having me. I just wanted to ask, I'm planning a trip to uh, Scotland, and I was fortunate enough to be able to do a pub crawl in Dublin a few years ago, as you've recommended on your show. I was wondering what options were available in uh, Edinburgh to do a similar thing, a pub crawl. A pub crawl for... Uh, uh, to listen for music, for, like the musical type. I see, to enjoy traditional Scottish music yes, in Edinburgh. Scottish. I think we'd ask yes. Anne, because she's from Edinburgh. 
Well, there is there's a bar in Forest Road called Sandy Bells. Oh, I've been. They there. always right. advertise traditional music, and a lot of people like Billy Connolly and what's her name started there. But I have to say that if you wanted to do a pub crawl. You could start at the Guildford Arms at the east end of Princess Street and go down Rose Street. There's 29 pubs there. But the pubs tend to have modern progressive music. You've really got to sort of uh, look at the gig guide and find out who's playing traditional music because it's all moved forward. So, Brandon, that's called the gig guide, G-I-G, the gig guide. And the reality is I think bars in Scotland make more money with with modern music, but Mm. there's still a lot of traditional music. But Mm. might I say that the traditional music is popular in the tourist areas because that, that keeps it going? On High Street, you've got several, three or four bars that play traditional music every night. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. But I think the further you get out from the tourist areas, the more spontaneous it becomes. I if mean, music is that, a yeah. part of Scottish culture. So traditional so music is still vibrant. Their, yeah, I mean, for example, the hotel that we stay in in Kenmore, um, there's a father and daughter that turn up and play just for the love of it. Mm. And you know, people just join in. It's just spontaneous. So if you can get that, and again, by asking around, it's easy to find. I think, Brendan, actually, if you really want to experience music in, in Scotland, if you're just in Edinburgh and around, take a train through to Glasgow. <laughs> of course! <laughs> Gla- Glasgow, Glasgow is the music city of Scotland. It's, it's a UNESCO city of music. Uh, there you can find a lot of traditional true. music. I see nods like, of uh, uh, approval from all yeah. the guides at the table. No, here. I go down, agree. Go down to yeah. the Scotia Bar. Um, the pick Scotia up the gig bar. guide again. So the gig yeah. guide, you can the pick it up guide. in all pubs that have music. You can find it online as well. Just Google gig guide and then the city. Edinburgh and, and Brandon, it's not so far-fetched because on. there's two trains an hour and it takes 45 minutes, I Absolutely. think, from Edinburgh to And Glasgow. also, if you do your research, lots of festivals on at that time of year. So it's not just yeah. the pubs. You might have to, to leave your beer for a while and go out and enjoy the festivals. if you head out as well towards Argyle Street, the West End part of Argyle Street and you've got the Ben Nevis Bar, the Isla Inn and the Park Bar and they're, they've always got live music on for you. They're all right next to each other. You wow, Brandon, it sounds pretty there. clear if you're looking for traditional music and you're going to Edinburgh, you might seriously consider a couple of nights and a day in Glasgow. And Yeah, we'll actually be staying there a couple of nights, oh, so I'll there make you... sure and look that up there as well, yeah. Perfect. Hey, um, thanks for your call, Brandon, and good luck in your uh, quest for traditional Scottish music. Yes, thank you, Rick. Cullen Mayers, Liz Lister, and Anne Doig are treating us to a wee dram with their visitor's guide to enjoying the pubs of Scotland right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Cullen, uh, Brandon is going to uh, Glasgow, mm. and I remember when you were my guide in Glasgow, you, you took me into different sports stores, yes. and you impressed upon me the importance of knowing what team you're for and wearing the proper colors, right. almost for your own physical safety. <laughs> Can you Can talk be. a little bit about that? Certainly, yeah. So the two big football teams, soccer we call football, you know, you play with your feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have two, a round ball, don't yes, you? Yeah, yes, okay. you, you kick it. So the two big soccer teams are Glasgow Rangers and Glasgow Celtic. Uh, Celtic, the colours are green and white. And Rangers, it's red, white and blue, but specifically blue. So when we went into the Celtic store, you and I, Rick, we looked around, there was no blue. There was one blue folder, I think, just sitting on a desk. That was the only bit of blue. I think you're wearing a blue tie and you you were nervous. You thought, (laughs) I shouldn't be here. I'm in enemy territory with a blue tie. (laughs) It was dangerous, yeah. And I thought, this is kind of ridiculous. But I felt nervous for you also. Yeah, yeah. I thought, because I looked around, there was not a stitch of blue in the whole store. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And people in Glasgow anyway can kid guess immediately what team someone's supporting by the colors they're wearing. So, Colin, there's this, you know, in Chicago, they got the Cubs and the White Mm -hmm. Sox. And... uh, 
in Glasgow, you've got your two teams. Is it a working class versus higher class? Is it a Catholic versus Protestant? Uh, yeah. What, what does you, it boil down you, to? You got it with the, the second one there. Catholic versus Protestant is what it's often painted as. It's not always as simple as that. It doesn't always mean oh, but that. the roots of that yeah, go that so way. Celtic, they were founded by an Irish Catholic priest. Uh, he wanted to raise money for the poor Irish immigrants living in the east end of Glasgow. Rangers were founded with no religious affinity, but because all the Catholics living in Glasgow started to support Celtic, the Protestants said, well, we'll go for the other That's side. That's the alternative. And that Would Catholics be more or less prosperous than Protestants? Not, or is that completely not today. Not today. Originally? Yeah. Well, they, I mean, the Catholics, yeah, they came over from Ireland. They would have been Irish immigrants. And they were Irish immigrants. They were poor. And they kind of had competition with the Protestants already living in Glasgow, which led to a bit of friction. It's a little bit of a hangover of uh, the problems in Northern Ireland. It's similar to that. I think that sectarianism, the only foothold that it has in Scotland these days is through football. But I would also counter that by saying that the American coming shouldn't be off, put off by it. There is no risk. You know, It's not as if an American strolling into the wrong side of town is going to be in some way in danger. That's not the case at all. The predominant feeling is one of warmth and humour. And that would by far outweigh any, any sectarian prejudice. That is so true. Warmth it's and humor. humor. I mean, you, you nailed it there from my experience yeah. in Scotland. You go into a bar, people are just in love with life. It's warm, it's inviting, and there's a great sense of humor. And it's irony. It's one that the Americans take a little while to get used to because it's sarcasm and irony. It's the play down. Um, <laughs> so it's a very distinct well, Glaswegian com- humor. It is. If a yeah. comedian makes it in Glasgow, they've made it. Because if they stand up and they don't do well, they'll throw things at them. <laughs> so Glasgow is the place to really get hardened and ready to well, go. Well, because the people in Glasgow have got a better sense of humour than the people exactly. on the stage. That's because they're Irish. And it's also <laughs> the Irish influence. Yeah. That's right. Glasgow it, is sort of like the gateway to Ireland for but Scotland. It's, it's also said that it's because Glasgow had the big industries and the humour was forged in the shipyards, in the shipyards. and the factories, what's which the, Edinburgh didn't have. What's mm. the statistic? At one time, half of the ships Five. in the world... Uh, one time, mm. there were, yeah, well, there were, there were over 50 shipyards in the Clyde. And nearly half the shipping There's in the whole world was... 50% from, uh, of the world's shipping was made in Clydeside. Yeah. Clydeside Five, meaning Glasgow. Glasgow, Glasgow yes. Yeah. 5,000 Irish arrive per week in the hungry 40s mm. in uh, Glasgow. Hungry 40s meaning the... 1840s, 1840s. the pota- potato famine. Those who had absolutely nothing came to Glasgow for the industries and from the highlands of Scotland. So Glasgow, to me, is the soul of Scotland in a way. Mm. Celtic Scotland, the highlands and the lowlands together in Glasgow. And I the, love Glasgow. And, and it's, you're talking Celtic, Celtic. And then you're talking about the Celtic soccer yeah, team. And yeah. is that the Catholic team? Yes. 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 There you go. So there is a connection there. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Perfect. This has been so fun talking about connecting with the Scottish people through a visit to a pub. We've been talking with Andoig, Colin Mares, and Liz Lister. Let's finish off our conversation just with one little tip for our listeners when they go to Scotland, how to have a, a, a great connection with the culture of Scotland during their visit to a pub, whether it's in the big city or some little village way out in the Hebrides Islands. Uh, Liz Lister. Don't be afraid. Get out there. Talk to people. They want to talk to you. They'll tell you their life story. They'll tell you what the contemporary issues are. And they'll probably give you a bit of their Scots history as well. Great. And Doig. 
Well, particularly in the islands, the Highlands and Glasgow, but you might not find that in Edinburgh. I have to say, you know, I live in Edinburgh. Uh-huh. They're not so friendly in Edinburgh. We've got that reputation, po-faced Presbyterians. Poor-faced Presbyterians. <laughs> Poor-faced po- Presbyterians. Oh, like, like, like straight-faced. Straight-faced. Straight yep. oh, okay. Yes. But if you go to the traditional pubs and you go up and stand at the bar and buy a drink and chat to the person next to you, They'll be really friendly. No, you mentioned if go you to reach the bar. out, if, so go if to you, the bar. If don't you sit, sit at a down. table, you're asking. You're, you're you at don't a disadvantage. Get, you're at a disadvantage. People give you your privacy at a table, but sit at the bar, you'll have a friend. Yes, whether exactly. you like it or not. And talk yes, to them about the bus you, stop. You, there's not very often waitress service. If you go into a pub, you have to go up to the bar and buy a drink, and it's quite good fun doing that because that's where you get to meet you know, people that's a who are tip. waiting. Yeah, that's a good tip for a traveller because a lot of times we sit at the table and go, "Where's the service?" Well, there isn't. Yes, go to the bar, isn't. order your drink and your food. Yeah. Come yeah. on, Mary. Ask, ask someone at the bar standing next to you what they'd recommend you drink, and that's your opener, and then you and then you chat away. Then the and which whiskey you like? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if you really want them to love you, then put an open tab behind the bar. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great tips. Hey, Andoig, Liz Lister, Colin Maris, thank you so much for uh, a better understanding of uh, the beautiful social scene in your beautiful country. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm Anne Doig. I live in Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland, and I lead tours all around Scotland. And each area of Scotland has got very strong uh, local traditions and dialects. Up in the northeast, it's called the Doric. And my grandfather spoke the Doric and Standard English. You would not understand somebody with Doric speaking to you. And one example is this, and it goes, fit, fit, fits, fit, fit. <laughs> Fit in the Doric is what? And fit also means foot. Uh, and so it's which or what foot fits what or which foot, meaning your boot. <laughs> fit, fit, fits, fit, fit. And there's absolutely no relation to standard English. Fit like means how are you? Um my son, he had a production company and he called it Fit Like Productions. <laughs> How are you? Um, a, a little boy is called a loon and a girl is called a quine or a quiney. They say it's because of the, the trading links with Northern Europe and Scandinavian people understand the rhythm of the Doric. But it's very, it's impenetrable to standard English-speaking people, I have to say. Somebody from Glasgow would not understand somebody from the northeast if they were speaking in the Doric. Fit, fit, fits, fit, fit. <laughs> Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac kaplan Wolner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. Rick also has an app for your mobile phone with self-guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. 
At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.